0: way up once again this evening and as you'll see we're in series two and we're in number 10 number 10 and we've called that the final return i think of all the uh, subjects that you might come across in the bible this is probably one of the toughest there is such a lot of material in the new testament and the old testament I mean, I was just thinking, I think I'm quoting tonight from about five or six of the Old Testament prophets they have all got things to say about the final end of history. And of course, when you get into the New Testament, you've got a whole lot, big swathes of the teaching of Jesus. You've got chunks of the apostles, epistles of Paul. You've got the book of Revelation. You've got a big stack of stuff. And somehow you've got to try and weave that all in together. It's not all in one place so, that you can just kind of say, doom, 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 there it is, it's all done. So, you've got to dot around and try and sort of fit it together and make it make sense and make it cohesive. That's what I'm trying to do this evening. So, the final return then is our theme. Uh, it's in the culture to some extent. I mean, Hollywood, uh, I think that, uh, that is a, a clip or a, a, a slide from the film Armageddon which is actually taken the biblical word uh, for its title. That's not uncommon. There was another series of films, The Omen, of course, which featured the Antichrist, uh, Deep Impact, which had another catastrophic scenario for the world. So it's actually quite a favourite um, theme. The day after tomorrow with global warming and everything else, Independence Day with aliens coming in and so on. Uh, so the, Hollywood is full of it. And I think there is a sense... And, you certainly, as I go around talking to people, that, uh, that, that things are moving onwards and nobody's quite certain where they're going. So we are going to tonight try and look at what the Bible says about it and put it into some order. Okay, I've caught this bit then towards the end of history. That's a, another bit of a title. And uh, I'm uh, going to suggest to you there are seven major steps at least as far as I can discern them in the period in the run-up towards the end of history as we know it because that's actually that's what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus coming back we're talking about the the, the final wind down of history and the beginning of a new age so I mean this is pretty mega stuff really uh, so uh, the, here are the seven first of all the beginning of the sufferings there's a, a clear period that Jesus talked about that was not the end but towards the end uh, we're going to talk about Jerusalem surrounded in numbers of places in both the prophets and in the teaching of Jesus Jerusalem comes right into the world center stage which is very interesting because actually for many many centuries Jerusalem has been largely a backwater in terms of polit- politics and uh, you know the movements of nations and so on but now within the 20, 20th and the 21st century Jerusalem is very much on the agenda We're going to talk about the in-gathering. Some people call that the rapture. Not all Christians agree about this, but I'm going to try and make a case for this being very much a part of it, that before the final end, there is a return by Jesus to gather out all those whom he can, who are his, uh, to be with him. Then we're going to look at the tribulation. That then triggers into a period of tribulation. That's a Greek word that simply means a time of great pressure. So the, the in-gathering followed by the, the time of great pressure, which is then followed by uh, a period of, of unique peace under the rulership, uh, the authority of the Messiah who comes to reign upon the earth. Uh, then we're really getting into the, into the future, into the final, uh, the final days. The Bible talks about the great white throne at the end of time when all men uh, will come before that throne And then the new heavens and the new earth. The whole earth as we know it, the space-time creation that we've lived in is finally wound down and we move into a new creation. Wow. I mean, these things are so momentous. It's actually really hard to get your head around it. You know, if you say it seriously, you think... this is incredible. I mean, we've only ever known this world. We've only ever known all these things happening. Could it really be that that, that that history will close down and there will be a new heaven and a new earth? That's what the Bible teaches. I totally believe it. And hopefully we can make a case for it this evening. Beginning of the sufferings, then, we're going to start with, uh, and you'll find that in Matthew 24. I'm going to use a fair bit of scripture, but if you aren't able to follow it, well, hopefully the references will be there that you can look at later, should you want to. Uh, Matthew 24 and verse 4. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Christ, and they will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation, nation, will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pain. Some versions put the beginning of the sufferings, but Jesus actually uses the word here in Matthew, the beginning of the birth pains. which is a very interesting phrase to use. A woman in labor knows when the time is coming near, when the spasms start to occur, which is the sign of a new birth. And it's important to recognize that although the, the Bible does lay out some pretty painful things during these final days, the ultimate is, is moving into a new birth, a new day, a beautiful new day that God is planning to bring out of it. So these are the beginning of the birth pain. Then the next verse, which I thought we had to read. <coughs> and then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. So it seemed to me, it doesn't quite include it in this period, the beginning of the birth pain, but it does seem to be very much a part of it. This is all going to be happening during this time. So we'll uh, work our way through the the different things that are mentioned there. There was false prophets, you remember, uh, people coming in my name and leading many people astray. There was warfare, there was rumours of war, there were famines, uh, earthquakes. And of course, finally, the one persecution of jesus' own followers. now you could say, well, that has happened all and i 've known some people say, well this is just this has always happened this has happened all through history, but then, if that were so, it would be no point Jesus saying it. It seems to me that what Jesus is saying is that although to some extent these things are not completely um, strange in the history of the human race there there is there is going to be an intensification and uh, an increase in these things in the last days, sufficiently so that it will be noticeable and you'll be able to spot it and see that it's happening. I think it's possible to make a case to say that we have been in this period for possibly the last 150 or plus years. Uh, It seemed to me as I look at history that things started to change quite dramatically. We moved towards a post-Christian age midway through the 19th century. Uh, the Church hung on, but the Church then in the West has been declining in many places uh, since that that period, probably not until the twentieth century, but still nonetheless has suffered greatly as the the, the West so called which used to be a Christian culture, no longer is a Christian culture anymore, and lots of these things seem to have increased and intensified during this period, this hundred or whatever years, So this is, not a, this is not necessarily the beginning of the birthplace. It's not necessarily a really brief, short time, but actually seems to me to be, uh, uh, not huge, but nonetheless a reasonable period of time uh, when the world will begin to spasm as we look towards the dawning of a new day. I think that the passage in Revelation and chapter 6, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, is possibly a parallel to that. I've, I've read other, other people that have said the same thing, and uh, it certainly seems to me to be highly possible. There's lots of similarities about a whole lot of things, but I mean, you'll remember uh, in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, I watched as the Lamb opened, the first of the seven seals, and then I heard one of the four living creatures say, in a voice like thunder, come, come. And I looked and there before me was a white horse and its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword so wars and rumors of wars And so on and so on. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in its hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying a quarter of wheat for a day's wages and three quarters of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil in the wine. It's a time of, of sparsity and famine upon the earth. And when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death. And Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Sounds pretty grim, doesn't it? It is, you know, it's one of the great apocalyptic visions. It's in the culture, the horseman of the apocalypse, and everything else. And I think that you could make a definite case. If you don't agree, that's no problem. You could make a definite case to say this is all part of this same period. This is not the end. This is. Again, it's early in Revelation. This is before the events that sort of will eventually come forward. But in this early period, so that the four horses of the apocalypse are believed to be our demonic spirits that are set forth upon the earth. The first one is a, is a spirit of conquest. Desire for nations to be supreme over one another. And certainly that's been true for several hundred years now, running through the earth of empires of Europe and so on. And now, I mean, and it still runs on. There's China and Russia and so on uh, are still um, seeking to uh, bring forward conquest. Slaughter, the killing of many people, uh, famine, and then, of course, death following through the earth. So it makes grim reading. And uh, people look out in the world and say, well, what is happening in the world? Well, I suspect we may be in this kind of period. This is the, these are the birth pasm, uh, uh, pangs that are running through the earth through this time. Okay, so let's have a look at them. False prophets, first of all, well, um, we said in an earlier talk that the 19th century saw an eruption of groups and sects Uh, mostly out of America, but, I mean, in the 20th century, others have come through. But I mentioned the the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian scientists, and so on. All of them claim to be biblical. All of them claim some connection with Jesus Christ. All of them, to some extent, have have brought confusion in the world. And uh, all of them claim we are the way and nobody else is the way, and so on, and so on. So certainly the, the 19th century saw that erupting like big time. Uh, and we said other sects have also come about in the 20th, 20th century, things like the Mormons and the Scientology and so on and so on. That are, uh, and the moon is, uh, not the Mormons, the moon is, sorry, um, have come in the 20th, 20th century and onwards. Uh, there's also a resurgence of the old uh, major religions. They seem to have found new life. Um, so Hinduism in India is now really quite strong and connected with nationalism and there's sort of persecution there and so on. Islam is becoming increasingly militant all over the earth and is again seeking to, uh, believing that it can colonize and take over more of the world and beginning to get its its vision for taking making the whole world under Islam. Uh, and of course there's New Age pantheism um, growing. There's sort of uh, gods in everything kind of idea and crystals and uh, you know whole kind of stuff so false prophets it seems to me are widespread in a way that was not true you know for for a thousand years or more um the christian faith dominated much of the world and now that is a uh, increasingly changing warfare well it hardly needs me to content to comment on that i mean we have we have um we have uh, lifted warfare to an industrial scale uh, in the 20th century, and again, we're in the latter part of the 19th century. The two world wars that have, that have killed millions of people, we've already looked at that. Atheist regimes uh, through the world, I mean, th- like China and Russia, um, uh, I mean, Stalin and Mao Zedong, millions were killed uh, under those regimes. Uh, and there are more still, I mean, uh, North Korea is still one. The Cold War, there are signs that it could be resuming. Having thought that was all done, um, there's resurgent nationalism now in Russia and China, and they want their bit of the cake. They, they no longer want to be submitted to America. They want to make sure that they are now leaders in the world. Turmoil in the Muslim world still. Um, for all that uh, the revolutions that have happened, it's not resolved um, Russia and China, as we've already mentioned, as far as I know, are building big armies and putting huge amounts of money, money that I didn't think they had, but maybe they have, uh, putting huge amounts of money into building huge armies and strong militaries. And I read recently that America now is no longer confident that in a conflict it could actually beat either of them, certainly couldn't beat both of them together. Uh, So the balance of power in the world is changing and the world is not becoming a safer place. There are also, in addition to this, multiple oppressive dictators all over the world. It doesn't seem to be a peaceful place, the world at all. Jesus also said there will be rumours of war, and it seems to me that is that is particularly significant. It's not just that war is happening, but that we hear about it now. It's on the news. There isn't a war happens anywhere, you know, that we don't uh, hear something about the fact that it's going on. Uh, and in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4, there is a a prophecy that in the final days, I mean, uh, God tells Daniel to wrap up his prophecy for now and get it out at the end of time where men will run to and fro on the earth and knowledge will increase. Uh, Interesting, because it it seems to portray a a world where communications are are rapid and uh, available, uh, global, um, and where you can travel and talk and communicate and so on. Uh, in a way that has only really just become possible in this particular generation. Uh, of course, we're familiar with the fact that satellites now bring global television all over the world. The, the internet is exploding exponentially. Uh, and of course, many of us take, you know, I mean, I use it to get all my images and things I use on my talk. So, you but, would uh, be, but nonetheless, it is a fact. Uh, that we're in, that we're in a world where there is massive worldwide communication. The potential for evil to spread um, is hugely increased from anything that was uh, possible in the past. The mobile phone phenomenon, you can sometimes sit in a room and everybody can have their mobile phones out. What's everybody doing? I don't know what they're all doing, but they've all got their mobile phones out talking. So it's like a global connection is going everywhere and this kind of worldwide gossip and. Facebook and Twitter and people making comments and, you know, and, and and a lot of it can be quite harmful. Some of it can be good, but a lot of it's harmful. And we're beginning to see what happens when you have a world community where everybody's gossiping to everybody all the time about everything. Well, that's the, no doubt about it. This is, seems to be a part of it. Famines. I think the, the first major one was Ethiopia, the one that hit the headlines anyway in 1984. Um, and, uh, but still, it rolls on. There are a record to be 20 million people uh, whose lives are currently at risk from famine in the world. Uh, there are people starving in four countries. I mean, I just got these figures just recently. What well, is multiple causes, of course, it's not just one thing. It may be political incompetence. It may be deforestation, lack of rain, things happening to the planet. It may be weather patterns that are changing. And, of course, global warming we can... <laughs> certainly everything gets blamed on global warming doesn't it so uh, we could also say that <clears throat> um, and they're recurring um, and increasing it seems uh, so you have to say that and this is unique I don't think there have been anything like the scale of famines that there have been in the last uh, in the 20th century that's happening uh, earthquakes um, I, I took a sort of a note when, in August, because I was, I was actually starting to think about this and prepare this in August, believe it or not, um, and uh, in August 2018 there were 144 major quakes in seven days uh, in August. There were 69 in just two days from the 19th to the 20th of August. There was a 7.3 earthquake that hit Venezuela. There was an 8.2 that hit Fiji. And there was a 6.2 off the Oregon coast. Uh, in October 2018, there was also an earthquake and a tsunami that hit Indonesia. Now, you have to say, is this part of a trend? I mean, it's just our imagination. Well, I, I thought I must try and find out. So I went to a reputable um, uh, thing of a Bob. Um, uh, site that uh, that carried I think it says it's the um, the world earthquake database so it sounds pretty official and you'll see there the the um, uh, the graph that goes up for 1973 uh, it's something under 5,000 earthquakes here I mean that's surprising these are Uh, any earthquakes over 2.5 so I mean a 2.5 is fairly small unless it's right under you know in your back garden you'll probably be okay with a 2.5 but uh, so but there are 5,000 of those but I mean look now you're up to 25,000 that's a five-fold increase in just that amount of time so (coughs) it does seem as if there's a little bit of a trend going on here what about persecution I got these figures out of a Japanese newspaper, of all things. It's hardly reported in the Western media. Very interesting. Hardly any reporting of persecution of Christians in the, in the Western media. You would think that they might have a bit of a preference to do that, but they don't. This was in a Japanese newspaper. 400,000 Christians, it's been reckoned, have been killed in North Korea in the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years. So, I mean, it's over a fair period of time, but even so, that's a pretty amazing amount. Christianity is now almost extinct in Iraq and Syria. So the intervention of the West in those countries has not really helped the Christians. Whatever else it may have done, it's brought a a much more aggressive form of Islam that is now um, uh, run through the country. And those that haven't been killed have fled the country, so there are hardly any left there. Uh, in Pakistan, it's regular happened that, that Christians are abused and murdered with their draconian anti-blasphemy laws where any neighbour can shop you and get you put in prison and executed for next to nothing, sometimes nothing. Egypt and Nigeria are also same. Persecution is growing in India, as we've already said, and in the West, political correctness has become so obsessive in our culture that it trumps practically everything and all other rights and privileges. So the privilege to be able to believe what you, what you, what, what you believed is now no longer available uh, if you don't accept political correctness and if you, you know, conflict. So even in the West, that used to be the place where Christians uh, were reasonably safe, in America... Uh, it is increasingly not so, and uh, many people are viewing that with dismay. Jesus said, "Actually, that, that, w- that going to happen. You know, towards the towards the end of time, that is going to happen uh, all over the world. People will hate you on my on my name's sake. Re- rejoice and be exceeding glad." We've probably got to change our mindset and start thinking a little bit uh, like that. Okay, so that's the beginning of the... Have you got that so far? So that's a long time on that one, but that seems to me, that sets the tone. That's sort of where we are, I believe. So, I mean, these next things could happen at any time as from now. Um, And I put the second one on this, Jerusalem surrounded. In Luke uh, 21, we've got uh, some teaching from Jesus himself. And verse uh, 20... He says, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, then you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those in the city get out, let those in the country not enter the city, for this is a time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. Now, some feel that this is actually the beginning of the tribulation period. I'm not absolutely 100% certain on it. My own view is that there is is coming a time towards, before we get to that final time, when Jerusalem will also be surrounded by hostile nations. Uh, Certainly, if we go into Ezekiel and chapter 38... There is a passage there that seems to fit pretty much exactly uh, the present situation. Verses 1 through to 6, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Prophesy against him and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around. I will put hooks in your jaws. I will bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen fully armed, and a great horde with a large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them, all with shields and helmets. Also Goma with all its troops, and Beth Togoma from the far north with all its troops. Many nations with you. Uh, And then again in verse 16, uh, this passage goes on you will advance against my people israel like a cloud that covers the land in the days to come o gog i will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when i show myself holy through you before their eyes so you you get you get a whole scenario here and there's there these are the main nations that are mentioned a gog may be a leader uh, Meshech and Chubal come a couple of times, Persia, Cush, Put and Gomer. Um, and uh, according to um, verse 18 and 20, this is, this is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the Sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath I declare that at that time there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field every creature that moves along the ground and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence so it's big according to the bible there's a prophecy big things are going to happen in israel at a certain point towards the end through the beginning of the suffering we're in the changeover period we're moving towards the events of the sort of the tribulation and so on that's coming and uh, jerusalem is israeli now when will it happen well certainly when you look at the political situation you have to say it feels like it's quite close really because you've got a, an alliance i mean those uh, it, it's thought by most um, commentators that these ancient nations that i mentioned I, i've got a, a direct parallel with the nations of today that uh, russia would be equivalent of meshek and tubal could, moscow and tobolsk kind of may well be um, uh, varia- variations of that. The Muscovy were a, a whole tribe of people. They, were, at the time of this, they were only just further north. But of course, since then, they've migrated further and for- further north and formed what we now know as the Russian Federation. Iran, of course, is Persia. That I think is a fairly easy one to make. Uh, Kush is Ethiopia and, Su- and the Sudan and the whole area south of Egypt, um, uh, and uh, and put. Is, uh, it used to be thought it was Libya, but now it's thought it's actually many of the peoples along the North African coast, along North Africa, will be included. Goma is thought to be Turkey, it may also be Beth Togham, I'm not absolutely sure on that. But uh, but the interesting thing is that when you when you look at that, I mean that's exactly the kind of alliance that is forming in the Middle East today. I I would definitely say if anybody's interested to see what's happening in the future, see what's happening in terms of these nations at this time. There's never been a time when Russia has allied with all these Muslim nations. It would have no reason to do that. Now, through Syria, of course, it has done that. And uh, are and signs of, of, of Turkey coming in on it um, and allying with Iran, although I think they're different Muslim things. So it's a very weird thing that's happening. What will happen with Sudan and Ethiopia? Well, we don't know at this point, but it, it certainly wouldn't surprise me to see them coming on board. And of course, there's a fair bit of militant Islam along North Africa that will see any attack on Israel as something that they want to do. And in fact, if you look at those arrows there, you'll see that they've, they've put, you know, that put, put, um, and Kush down there, and then uh, the, there. The, interestingly enough, the exemptions... Uh, to this uh, thing are, are Egypt and Saudi Arabia, which is really interesting. Um, and uh, both of them have formed alliances with Israel. So, I mean, it may be that this is nothing to do with the biblical prophecy, but you have to say there is a phenomenal amount of synchronicity with what the Bible says will happen in these last days the final time towards Israel, and what's actually happening on the ground. So I wouldn't absolutely swear to it, but it does seem to me that we could be witnessing the, this Jerusalem being surrounded right at this moment. Certainly in Jerusalem, they do, and in Israel, they do believe that war is imminent. <clears throat> that either from uh, from the south and from Gaza, and from the north, from from the various terrorist organisations that have got massive arsenals of rockets all pointing at Israel at this time. So it's quite likely that we could... I would definitely say when you see that happening, uh, then you know that the time is definitely not that far away. Number three, uh, the ingathering, the rapture. Um, and I've taken the, the, the main passage for this from uh, Luke chapter 17 and verse 22 to 35. Luke uh, 17... And verse 22 and then he said to his disciples the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the son of man but you will not see it And men will tell you there he is uh, or or, here he is, do not go running off after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So a bit of a warning there, it will come suddenly and people will not know. Although well, he does say, be aware of the signs. Uh, so that's what we're seeking to do. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house, with his goods inside, should go down to get them. In other words, even if your stuff is really handy, don't, you know, get out of it. No one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Remember what happened to Lot's wife. She hesitated, turned around, and of course, she didn't escape the judgment that was coming. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in a field and one will be taken and the other left. And so on. So, I mean, Jesus is is speaking about an, uh, kind of weird stuff when you look at it, first of all. Notice, first of all, that in verse 22, he says, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and I, it seemed to me that there was an implication here that, that there's more than one. You know, the, and that's what I'm putting to you that actually, the, initially, he will come back and gather out his people, and then after the tribulation, after the period of great pressure, he will then come to judge the earth. So the kind of there are at least two distinct comings, and he certainly says one of the days of the Son of Man. But the, for me, the key reason for looking at these passages is that. They are both judgment events in the history and in the Bible. The story of Noah, Jesus talks about, and the story of Lot. Both of them were when God was going to move in judgment. But before God moved in judgment, he went into it to pull out the innocent people before he moved in judgment. He, didn't, he doesn't protect us from the power from the, from what evil men do. He doesn't stop us being persecuted. doesn't stop us having a hard time facing opposition, any of those things. But before he actually moves in judgment, it seems to me to be a principle that Jesus is actually saying here, before he moves in judgment, he will come and pull you out. And then he goes on to say how he does it. So I, I feel pretty certain myself and felt over some years now that part of the scenario of the end times is that at a certain point God will gather out of the world all those that are his people and, uh, and then stuff will accelerate and get uh, quite tough uh, which is to some extent adds a certain urgency to the proclamation of the gospel um, that men and women need to heed. Uh, verse 35 to 30 to 35 is a description of the ingathering uh, of God's people where it says two women will be grinding grain one will be taken other left two men will be in a field one will be taken two in one night two people will be in one bed and one, it's almost like it's global so some people will be in bed and some people will be working and doing their chores but suddenly all over the world there will be an, an outgathering of men and women, I mean, incredible, can't imagine that. But all of these things defy imagination. We would not be able to get our head around them unless we really focus on the Word of God and teach our imagination to imagine as God's Word says it. Remember Lot's wife who, who held back and looked back and went back and missed it. Uh, so there's a, a pretty strong challenge there to not miss it. Uh, In the book of Thessalonians, in two of the books of Thessalonians, there's a more detailed um, description of this in in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together. We'll this is a big, this is massive resurrection. I mean, we'll we'll have different bodies. We'll, We'll have floaty bodies. Just as Jesus ascended into heaven, we will be able to ascend into heaven. How about that? Uh, we're, we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. So it doesn't say, but the implication is that this is a private thing that is happening for disciples. Jesus is coming back to gather disciples. He's not at this point coming to judge the earth. He's not coming to deal with sin. He's not coming to set up the great white throne. He's just doing an in-gathering of all those that, that love him and are wanting to follow him. So he comes with a multitude of those that are already the resurrected saints. There is a trumpet call. Some have actually, I read a really interesting book and and this guy reckoned the number of times in the Bible when you get somebody resurrected, you get an earthquake. And, uh, and he reckoned that a resurrection is such a massive infusion of God's power on the earth that it actually has implications. So when Jesus was raised, not only when he died, but when he raised, there was another earthquake when he was raised from the dead. Uh, when the witnesses are risen in the book of Revelation, there's another earthquake. So it may, and this guy said, he thought that when the, when the rapture came, when, when people were gathered out, there would be such a huge uh, outgathering of men and women and resurrections that there would be a massive earthquake all over the earth. That's very interesting to think about that. Uh, it would, of course, mean that all those that were left behind, instead of saying, where's everybody gone? They wouldn't actually hardly notice that everybody gone because there'd be so many other people that would be lost anyway. And they'd all club together and say, let's get going. We've got to get things moving again now and so on. And uh, and so they'd miss the, the moral and spiritual point of it. So that would be very interesting. I'm going to pursue that a bit more. The book that I read was called Earthquake Resurrection. If you're interested, quite an interesting book. And uh, and everybody is clothed in resurrection bodies. So this is a big time event, uh, at least as far as I can see. Uh, in in one Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, and verses 1 through to 3, there's a little bit more on it. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him we ask you brothers not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy report or letter supposed to come from us saying that the day of the lord has already come so the people here were obviously they were they were a bit worried that they did it had happened and they missed it which does carry the implication that they were they were expecting a secret out gathering you know what i mean you couldn't you couldn't miss the big public one you couldn't miss Jesus, you know, coming on the clouds of heaven and every eye seeing. They thought that they'd missed the outgathering. They thought that they'd missed being collected. And they were a bit disturbed and worried about that. Uh, so they were definitely, it seems to me, expecting. That seems. Paul says, I told you a lot about this, but unfortunately we don't know it because it's not written in his letters. But you get the feeling that he would have taken all this through with them. And then he goes on in uh, in don't let anyone deceive you in any way, verse 3 for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So he seems to be implying that the, 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 the final rebellion of the human race will happen, you know, as at this time, before this happens. It will already be happening. That's the beginning of the birth pangs, the persecution, everything else, it's already happening. And then, and, and, the, and even that the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the final global leader that sets himself against God, will have already been revealed. May not be necessarily at his uh, greatest power, but will already have been revealed. Okay, so we've, we've got so far. The, the, the people of God have been gathered out. Uh, the rest of the world now faces a time of, of considerable Tribulation and pressure—that's a model of the temple in Jerusalem—and I put that up there because um, I'm going to look at a prophecy in Daniel, which is quite a complicated prophecy, I have to say. Um, and uh, but for many people, many commentators believe uh, that it actually gives you gives the answer for the time scale uh, of what's happening at this time. in, in, in Daniel chapter nine, of verse 22, he says, "He instructed me and said to me, Daniel." I've now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you. This is Gabriel. This is the same Gabriel that came to Mary, you remember, and announced the birth of Jesus. For you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. In other words, the final consummation of all God's purposes for the deliverance of the human race, it's going to be 70 times 7 years for that to happen. Know and understand this, that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seventy sevens and sixty-two sevens. No, sixty-nine sevens. So out of your seventy sevens, there'll be sixty-nine sevens until the anointed one comes, who was, of course, Jesus. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. That's, of course, exactly what happened. Uh, at the time when this prophecy was given, Jerusalem was being uh, re- reconstituted. The temple was being rebuilt. And the prophecy came and said there will be uh, 490 years altogether for this project. But but there will be 483, trying to do my maths in my head, 483 until the Messiah comes. After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. He'll be killed. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, which of course they did, the Romans. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. There's a whole period there of stuff that is happening on. And he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. There's one seven, one block of seven years left over. It's as if history stops for the, for the Jews and for the temple at that first 483. And then there's a whole period of desolation. The Jews are scattered among the nations. The temple is destroyed. is left a heap of ruins, you remember, by the Romans. There's nothing there. But then there is one seven left that will continue the history of Jerusalem, uh, salvation history and the history of the Jews being saved. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. It's a bit complicated, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I, thought, I thought when I... <laughs> I thought, Lord, this is very complicated. Uh, hopefully we can uh, make some sense of it. The d- decree to rebuild Jerusalem, it's, it's reckon, was around 450 BC. And it, it says here at the beginning, this is when this word came. 450 BC. So it, the prophet Daniel sees 490 years for the temple before the end. <clears throat> but after 483 years, the Messiah will be cut off. And if you do the maths, you can see it's pretty much on it. Some have done the maths much more accurately than me. And have actually got it spot on, you know, to the very kind of day, practically. Uh, well, my maths isn't quite as good as that, but I totally believe it because God is very precise. God does things Exactly. But after 483 years, that's the, the 62 and the 7 years, that's 69 sevens. 69 sevens is 483. The 483 years, uh, the Messiah will be cut off. The, temple, the veil of the temple was torn in two. And of course, eventually, within a few years of that, the temple was destroyed by the Romans. And then comes this huge period uh, where, of desolations, where nothing is really happening. Um, and then finally, a final seven years when the temple is rebuilt with the help of the Antichrist in 923. That's, the, that's what I unpicked from this. And, and interestingly enough, these, these time frames come again and again in the book of Revelation. Um, the, you know, the half time, a half a time is time and times and half a time. That's three and a half years. So there's a kind of a, the seven years is split in half to three and a half years, three and a half years. The first three and a half years uh, it's thought that with the cooperation and the help of the Antichrist, the Jews will be able to rebuild the temple again in Jerusalem. And then, and then they double, he double crosses them halfway through, um, and for the second three, and tries to put his own image there in the temple uh, and draw the world to worship him uh, in the final time. So that that is that seven-year period. This is what's kind of going on, at least as far as I can understand it. Uh, from the prophecy of Daniel. But there's, of course, a lot of other stuff that is also happening during the tribulation. So there's massive spiritual events happening, but what other things are happening? Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 3 to 12 uh, sets the scene for this, which I'll go back to. We were there uh, a moment ago. 2 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 to 12. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed and the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So here's the kind of the scenario that we mentioned in Daniel, where there's a kind of double cross halfway through. He will seek to draw worship. He will be the Antichrist. He will set himself in opposition to Christ. So he is the one to worship. And he will seek to get the whole world to follow him in a final act of rebellion. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed in the proper time. What is holding him back? The man of lawlessness is already revealed. But what is holding him back? What's holding him back? Well, some believe it is actually the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. Is still holding him back. Uh, we'll see more about that in a minute. The secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But he's not manifesting fully. But the one who now holds it back will be continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. But it could be that the removal of the church is actually the trigger that, that precipitates it. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with a overthrown with the breath of his mouth and destroyed by the splendor of his coming the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of satan is made in all kinds of counterfeit miracles signs and wonders and every sort of evil that deceives those who perish. It's exactly what we get in the same picture in the book of revelation it's completely different parts of the scripture uh, that, that say this they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved So there's a a kind of, there's a tragedy really that the world becomes more and more antagonistic and hostile. And the more God seeks to draw men's attention, the more they turn away and say, I will not do it, I will not do it. So that kind of the scene. So there are three things, dynamics, I think, that that trigger and precipitate the tribulation. One is the removal of the church itself. uh, As we've already said, it's, it's described in Revelation 7. Uh, right early on in the book of Revelation, a whole multitude from every tribe and nation that are before the throne and are worshipping in the presence of God. And, and then, of course, stuff starts to happen. Satan intensifies his activity. In, in Revelation uh, 12, 12, uh, we get a, a very insightful verse there when it says, Rejoice, you heavens, you that dwell on them, but woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. So something changes at this last point. It's as if the enemy knows now that his time is short and with a re- renewed intensity redoubles his effort. So although he's been in the world and doing stuff in the world through generations, this final time will be pretty so the church has been removed, the influence that Jesus said you are the salt of the earth. The salt's been taken out. That's gone. Satan is now moving with redoubled uh, act, intensified activity, and God is moving in judgment. And that's probably the greatest uh, factor of all in Revelation 14, uh, verses 6 through to 7. I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation a tribe and language and people. He said, in a la- God never gives up all the way through fear god and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come this is it now guys this is the time you have to repent worship him who made the heavens the earth the sea and the springs of water so those three factors i believe are the dynamic factors that that, that trigger in the the uh, the tribulation the period of judgment the period of pressure the church is taken out satan gets more active more intensely hostile and god then begins to move in general so it is a perfect storm of everything uh, coming together Uh, the book of revelation is largely taken up with the signs of this period and it's like all the disaster movies you've seen only worse i have to say And, I mean, there's not time time for me tonight to do the whole of the book of Revelation. I'll just skip over a couple of the things that seem to come fairly clearly. First of all, cosmic, physical signs, disturbance. This is back to Jesus uh, in verses 25 to 26 of Luke 21, where he says, there will be signs in the sun, and moon and stars. This is Jesus speaking. On the earth nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint with terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. I mean, people say that if you're ever in an earthquake, it is really frightening. If you've never been in an earthquake, you think, well, you know, as long as you've not got a building falling on you, it's just the earth moving. But from what I gather, it is deeply disturbing when these kinds of things happen. And it seems to me that that is is what the scenario that is pictured here. There is stuff coming out of the heavens. The seas are in turmoil. There is widespread terror uh, all over the earth. So this is not a good place or a good time to be. Uh, There is also a lot of destruction in the earth. I mean, you might say we're almost getting some of it already. You know, massive forest fires in California. And they've had them in Australia and different places in the earth. Uh, but in Revelation 8 and verse 6 forward, we're told of, uh, of all kinds of stuff that is happening. Revelation 8 uh, and verse 6. Seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. And the first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, all the green grass. I mean, people say, well, why doesn't God deal with Satan? Well, now he is. And uh, and, and it's, not, it's not pretty. It's not easy. So the, you can't get away from the fact that the, that the whole created order when the Creator begins to move against the devil that has entrenched himself into the very fabric of everything, then it is going to be fairly traumatic. He will not give up easily. He will do as much damage as he can as God begins to move on him. Uh, What about political signs? Well, um, you've got that rather bizarre looking beast there. Amazing how many artists have tried to make a picture of the beast in Revelation. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea and it had ten horns and seven heads. I mean, that is as good a one as I've come across. Um, uh, With ten crowns on its horns and on each head a blasphemous name. And the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound. And so, so where do you get a beast like this? Well, I mean, the answer is you get it from the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel shows a series of these beasts, exactly the same beasts, one after another that follow one, then another. And they are kind of a series and... and and Daniel says, "What are these beasts? You know, the lion and the leopard, and so on, and everything else coming. What? Are they? And, and God says, basically, they are four major kings, world empires that will be on the earth. And you know, we know that one was the Greek Empire, one was the Babylonian, the Persia, the Roman Empire, which was the fourth beast that came upon the earth. And this one here in Revelation is a kind of conglomerate." A an addition of all those that have been so this is one would say this has to be the ultimate emperor this is the ultimate political ruler this is the the conglomeration of hitler napoleon stalin and a whole lot of all the great leaders of men or perhaps the great is not the best word for it Uh, all the leaders of men that have strutted across the stage of history there will come one that will be the kind of composite of all of them the final emperor of evil upon the earth that will set himself, the global ruler. Um, and, uh, oh, actually, if I could just go on, because I hadn't quite read all of those verses there. <clears throat> the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast. So men men became devil worshippers. Uh, the, the political ruler that will arise at this time will lead the whole world astray into demonic stuff but they would say who is like the beast who can make war against him the beast was given a mouth to utter, utter proud words and blasphemies to exercise his authority for 42 months 42 months is three and a half years you remember 43 years that's the half of that seven year period um, he opened his mouth to blaspheme god and to slander his name in his dwelling place and those who live in heaven, and he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. So this is a serious, this is a serious heavy, heavy character that will arise in this period, in the final uh, tribulation period. The other political signs, uh, there will be global persecution of Israel. In Zechariah chapter 3, it talks about another thing, when all the nations of the world will surround Israel. The first, the first one in Ezekiel is where you've got some nations, mostly Muslim nations, with Russia in concert. And God delivers them from that. But this one is all the nations of the world will persecute Israel and come against it. You've got Armageddon in, uh, in uh, Revelation 16. And the implication is that although the Antichrist uh, rules a global empire, it's not as united as it might be. There is division going on there. And in verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets so it's a dem- it's a demonized world they are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of god almighty so the, the bible seems to imply that that in the end although there will be a, a an antichrist that will seek global authority he will never hold it together for very long there will be others the kings of the east uh, the, that book of daniel talks about the kings of the north the kings of the south and they will gradually uh, be drawn towards uh, the, the centre, toward Israel, towards the Middle East, towards a valley, the Valley of Megiddo, which of course is where we get the word Armageddon. Um, and, uh, and so it, it goes on, uh, uh, the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gather the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Uh, so during the tribulation period then, there is this single leader that seeks to unify the world, doesn't quite manage to do it. So there's increasing, uh, so on. he will oppress the Jews, he will build his thing in the temple, and so on and so on. And then the final one uh, in Revelation chapter 18, verse 1, We've got described the fall of Babylon, which I've called the fall of civilization. Babylon is the first, uh, the oldest civilization, it's the original civilization. In fact, you can draw a line from Babylon right the way through all the empires of the earth, right the way through the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire then seeded Europe, and the European empires grew out of the Roman Empire, the British Empire, the Dutch Empire, the German Empire, the French Empire. All of these empires ultimately came out of that. The world became a global thing, but ultimately goes back to Babylon. Babylon, there is a kind of a a life joining right the way through all the empires of men from that original one. And then in Revelation 18, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, and he had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by splendor. Brilliant. Uh, what, with a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a home for demons a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. So this is a wealthy, rich, evil, corrupted civilization. Global civilization, then, it seems to me, is a part of it. And that, the Bible says, at the end of this period... Will fall, <clears throat> and Israel will be redeemed. Zechariah goes on to say, "I will pour out in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem is after the nations have surrounded it a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on the one that they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child." That is a, I mean, that's amazing when you think crucifixion wasn't even known when that prophecy was penned. Uh, Israel will be redeemed in that time. And then comes the millennium, the period when Jesus returns and establishes his reign upon the earth. In Revelation 19, in verse 11 to 16, And I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His his eyes, that's the difference, you see. With justice, he judges and makes war. He, he still does make war. You know, you can't pussyfoot around this kind of evil. He does have executive and military authority and power and might. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild coming back now. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself, And he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. And he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. I mean, when you, when you listen to all this, you think, boy, this is so depressing. I mean, there's such a lot of evil. It's going to get worse. But you have to say the king is coming. And he is more than adequate for this. He has all authority and power. He carries many crowns. His name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he will come and reign and put it all down for a thousand years. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain, and he sees the dragon that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. And you think, well, why? Are you trying that? You think, why? Why why didn't, why didn't the Lord just finish it now? You know, bring in a new heaven, a new earth. Can we jump over this bit? Uh, i'm going to try and give an answer number one because the prophets foretold it now you may say well they only foretold it because it was going to happen but nonetheless they did foretell it and you've got it again again i mean in isaiah uh in chapter 11 verses 14, it talks about the coming of righteous the messiah and he shall rule and the lion shall dwell with the lamb and a beautiful world he will it is it's his world and he will establish it. He will not allow it to be taken over and stolen away. In Micah it says they shall beat their swords into plowshares. They shall not study war anymore. And all the nations shall flow unto Zion. The peoples will come to Jerusalem. The Messiah will reign. So to some extent, for whatever reason, God said this will be so. The king will come. He will rule again upon the earth. Zechariah 14. And I'll read that one. And verses 8 to 11. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the Eastern Sea and half to the Western Sea, in summer and in winter, and the Lord will be king. So the whole topography of the Middle East will change. Jerusalem will be lifted up water will flow out from the temple and flow down into the mediterranean and down into the dead sea on that day there will be one lord and his name the only name the whole land from Geba to Rimmon, south from jerusalem will become like the arabah but jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place from the benjamin gate to the side of the first gate to the corner gate from the tower of hananel to the royal wine presses it will be inhabited Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. And so the prophets go on and speak of the day will come when the Messiah will come and reign upon the earth and the earth will come again to a golden age. For a time. Um, And and I, I think for me the final clincher to this is that he is the rightful king. This is his world he has inherited the title you remember Pilate said to him are you the king of the Jews and uh, and Jesus said you say that I am well he was we've said the other week I think it was he's the second Adam he is he is now the father of the renewed human race he is the leader of the of the of the whole people and he will bring peace to the nation this is his world Satan is the prince of this world, but he is the king. Satan has usurped it. Jesus will take it back. Not for a long time, a thousand years. And he will restore harmony to nature. He will rule from Jerusalem. And all men will have the opportunity in that time to repent. Now, don't ask me what will happen at that time to them, but it seems to me certainly that they do, even in that time. We're told that Satan finally meets his doom. In Revelation 20, And 7 to 10, he's put in the lake of fire and he is finally destroyed. And then comes the great white throne, Revelation 20. And with this we finish. Revelation 20 and verse 11 to 15. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and earth and sky fled from his presence. And there was no city on each, sorry, wrong, Turn over two pages. And there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small. So the the first thing we're told is that the creation unravels. Uh, The the space-time creation winds up, rolls up like a scroll. There is nothing else there at this moment but the throne. The throne of God is everything that there is. He has not yet created a new heaven and a new earth and I saw the great and small standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life you got two sorts of books that are opened here you've got the book of life that's open and you've got the the other books that are opened so the books were opened, and another book was open have you got that there's a whole lot of books were opened but then there's one book that's open the book one book that's is the book of life and the dead were judged according to what they'd done as recorded in the books so this is the books of all the deeds of all the people that have ever lived. There must be a lot of books. There's an awfully big library of books up there and everybody, everything you've done is written in the book. Oh dear. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what he had done. It's everybody. Everybody that ever died, they're all brought before the throne and everybody is judged by what they've done. Now, I don't know how confident you feel about that. Sometimes people have said to me, well, I, you know, I don't mind. I'll be judged on my merits. I, I've been a good person. Are you really sure about that? How confident are you that you're good enough to pass? Well, I, I put you out of your misery. You're not. If you take your chances, you've got no chance. You, You aren't going to make it. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, if you're in the other books, you've had it. If you're in the books of what you've done, you're not going to make it. That is the the message, really, of, of this. Jesus said to his disciples, Be grateful that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I would say to anybody, you really want to get your name in that book. Don't go for your deeds. You will not make it on your deeds. So we have the choice, justice or grace. It's a free gift. It's a free gift that we can be forgiven everything because he's paid the price for us. But if we choose not to, if we choose to not take the free gift, then we're judged on our deeds, what we've done. And we won't make it. And then, of course, the final division. Uh, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I mean, Jesus talks about it again and again as he goes through his ministry. The sheep and the goats, the wheat and the chaff, again and again. The great division that will come at the end of time that, uh, that God that we will have to confront before a holy God. So the great white throne. That's it. Oh, no, it isn't. New heavens and a new earth. <laughs> Sorry about that. I've got one more to come. Uh, I'm going to whiz through this pretty, uh, pretty quickly. I mean, this is, the, this is the best bit on the end. In, in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1 forward, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So the great white throne now has brought forth the new creation. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. I didn't get holy city, new Jerusalem in that picture. It's just round the corner. Is that all right? <laughs> uh, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband, And I heard a loud voice through the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So the first thing that we find about the new heaven and the new earth is a place where we belong. The dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them and they will be his people. The second thing that we see about it is that it's a place of adventure. He says in verse 5, I'm making everything new. Everything new. Now, C.S. Lewis saw heaven as a place where the sun was always rising and you were constantly moving on towards the mountains. It was a China journey going on. People say, well, it's, isn't it going to be a bit dull in heaven? I think I'd rather be in hell, you know, telling dirty jokes with all my bad friends. You won't. I mean, heaven will be a place of adventure, supreme, beautiful, wonderful. It will also be a place of fulfillment and satisfaction. He said in verse 6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And he who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son. It is a place of, you know, we often find that we're not always satisfied, are we? Always a little bit, marching forward, looking for the next corner, looking for the next thing we can have. Here it will not be so. You drink of the river of the water of life. We will be totally satisfied in that place by the one that knows us through and through. Be a place of wonder. Um, In verse 10, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that... Very precious jewel, like a jasper, as clear as crystal, sparkling, amazing, like nothing he'd ever seen before. place of huge wonder and worship. Verse 22. And I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. And so there's a place of worship. God is there in the centre of it. And freedom. Verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It will be a holy place, a place of great freedom and blessing. and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will no longer need the light of lamp or the light of sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. A place of endless renewal and beauty and light. I mean, the Bible says, Eye has not seen, and nor has ear heard, and nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. I have to say, I, I can't do very well at this. Uh, it, I, it, it's beyond anything that we have ever known. When we stand in that place, that is the that is, So you start with the birth pangs, the beginning of the birth pangs, and move towards the birth of a new dawn, the new dawn, the dawn of a new age that God has prepared for those who love Him. Let's bow for a moment in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your purposes. We thank you that you're the God of history. We thank you, Lord, that although Uh, We see sometimes disturbing things happen and perhaps yet worse to come. We thank you that you you have a plan and you're working towards the accomplishment of that permit. You, You will bring all things out towards your will. And we thank you that all things work together for good with those that love you, even in the midst of it all. So we pray, Lord, make us men and women that are able to face these days and overcome in them for the sake of your son Jesus. Thank you that he overcame for us and we give ourselves to him and for him in these days. So we ask your blessing on it. Pray you take your word, Lord, and make it live for us. Help us to grapple with it and understand it and apply it and live by it, we pray. Because we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. Uh, I, I did want to add just one thing that I'd forgotten completely to mention. Uh, in my talk and I'd actually forgotten to incorporate it into the whole thing so it's worth putting that in Um, and that is that the the, the purpose of the rapture is not simply to take us out before God judges now that is obviously part of the Father's mercy that he does show us sort of that he does that Um, but also as I can understand it we are taken out for a purpose and we're taken out to be with the bridegroom up in heaven for the for the wedding And of course that also comes in the book of Revelation. So while stuff is happening on the earth and tribulation is happening and judgment is beginning to work out in heaven there is a wedding going on so that when the Messiah comes back with the armies of heaven he comes with his bride uh, dressed in linen and so on. So there is is a a distinct purpose in that and we come back with him to reign with him. Okay, right. Now the questions that have been given... Maybe a childish question, not at all. Uh, when we peg it, we all know what that means, do we fall outside of time and sort of fast forward to the end times, the new heaven and the new earth? Yeah, I think we probably do. Uh, I, I mean, uh, uh, Jesus said, you remember, to uh, the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. So, you know, there is a bit of a sense that paradise is where we where we wait to, for the new heavens and the new earth. But how much sense of the passage of time there is during that, I don't know. I can't imagine that you'll be sitting there thinking, boy, you know, when 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 is this going to happen? You know, we <laughs> just done a century. Um, yeah, so I have a feeling that, that, that time will be completely different uh, outside of the space-time creation that we live in. So, yeah, I think it will be... Hugely accelerated. And the thief on the cross might well have found he's with Jesus and then very quite rapidly then you know moves into the thing. Certainly, I mean if you if you look up on the on the internet on YouTube as I've been doing a bit part of my preparation, near death experiences and people's descriptions of heaven. I mean, Kip was just sharing one guy's, but I mean, I, there are numbers on online. I mean, some may be a bit wacky, but most of them seem quite amazing and quite consistent in the sense of glory and wonder, and the and the beauty of it, and the, the 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 dimensional, you know, the dimensional nature of it. It's like like nothing. I mean, one guy said he was just so broken-hearted to come back to the earth. It seemed so drab and dull after where he'd been. And that that seems to be a pretty uh, consistent report. So, eye has not seen and nor has ear heard and nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared. We have no idea what the real life will be, but we will not be disappointed. Prophecy is complex. Are we in danger of focusing on what will come to be rather than what is happening now? Uh, There is always a danger of any kind of you know, of any aspect of the Christian gospel that you focus on one bit to the exclusion of all else. Um, Some churches are focused entirely on what's happening now and don't focus hardly at all on what's to come. Um, I think probably we need to get the balance between the two really as much as we can. We need to be. Uh, re- we need to know where we're going. We need to know what our destination is. Otherwise, we're not going to travel with any security or certainty. But we also need to move in the power of the Spirit now. We need to see the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, working out now, and we're not just kind of sitting around waiting for glory to drop into our lap. I mean, definitely teaching that indicates that Jesus will be wanting to see us active in the work of the kingdom right up until the very end. But hopefully it will give us more urgency. I mean, the 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 thing that drove me into the ministry like fifty plus years ago, that suddenly made it the only moral choice that I could make in my life was the realization that many people that I knew were going to hell. They had no idea. They didn't know. So I so I think, you know, that can add a certain extra to the now. Is hell eternal? Uh, or does it end when satan is destroyed uh, it's interesting the bible doesn't actually say that satan is destroyed but i mean it says that i don't think he's put in the lake of fire but he just goes on um, and i mean obviously the, these these a uh, lots of these are pictures to give you a sense of it uh, but you get you know you get other pictures of of hell, which are outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. And I prefer that one because it seems, but that's completely different. You know, you can't have outer darkness and fire, you know what I mean? <laughs> Simultaneously. So they're, they're obviously metaphors. They're giving you an analogy, a sense of of what it is. And, and outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth um, seems to me to be a, a much more clear sense of the reality of it. The sudden sense that you've, you've turned down the best offer that you could ever have had. And there is, no, there is no company, no fellowship, no joy, no life, no love, no nothing, and no change. I mean, that is the ultimate awful place. Nobody wants to go there. and maybe maybe if, if as Christians we had more of a sense of this, we'd be more urgent with our loved ones and our friends and our relatives. Maybe. Do you think? but, uh, but I mean it, there are there are Christians who say, well it, it, you know maybe it does end, you know and I, I have to say that that's a view, but as far as I can see, the Bible doesn't give you any encouragement to think that and it, and it, a lot depends on what manner of people we are if if when god brought us forth we were eternal souls and that's not negotiable then that is what we are and we will live forever wherever we live so live forever with god i would suggest certainly don't bank on the on the possibility <laughs> that you might just die in the end and sleep forever uh, that uh, that um, that may or may not happen, but I suspect may not. What would happen with Christians that aren't raptured? Is there any hope for them? I think there is, as far as I can understand. You know, there there are people like Lot's wife, where Jesus says, "Remember Lot's wife," who, who should have been ready, was taken out, was rescued, and then turned back. She she didn't. She was not convicted of it. She didn't. She was not ready. She wasn't prepared. She wasn't willing to go at that moment. She and I'm not going to go. And uh, so, I mean, it seems to me possible there will be Christians who, for whom they don't even think about this, and don't and are not really ready and are not doing the Jesus work. Now, I mean, I don't think you need to be paranoid and be going around saying, "Oh, maybe I won't be ready," and maybe you know this, that, and the other. I think if you're if you're concerned that you will be ready and seeking to do. God's work I mean it's free gift it's grace so you're not earning it nobody earns it but you do need to be a bit ready that that would be my sense and um, uh, but those that aren't um, it seems to me that's not the end of it you know and uh, we were talking about the left behind series which is not the bible but it's one man's understanding of the, of the bible and scripture and how it is and certainly there life does go on and it may well be that, that after the rapture, there would be some, you know, there'd be some that say, "Oh no, nothing, don't care," and, but there would be some that, that loved one, who had loved ones that had gone, that people that have prayed for them for years, and say, "Oh, oh, what has happened?" You know, and would, and maybe would, would then repent. But 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 it seems to me that the time. Uh, after the rapture is going to, its not going to be easy before the rapture. There's persecution before the rapture, but it seems to me after the rapture, it go—it goes up a notch, because as we've said, that God is moving in judgment now, and so on. There's lots of persecution, many martyrs, and certainly the Book of Revelation has the as the account of many that are martyred for the faith. I believe that many from Israel will be saved during this time. This will be the final seven-year period when Israel. Uh, will, many in Israel will turn to Christ. The 144,000, the 12 tribes of Israel that God seals, they are Israel, They are Israel. perhaps symbolic, but nonetheless symbolic of a considerable number of people that will turn to Christ. So as Jews could turn to the Christ in this period now, which is in a sense the time of the Gentiles, so I believe Gentiles can turn to Christ in the time of the Jews, but it will be not easy. Okay, final question. I'm confused. Who will live in heaven and who will reside on earth after the new heavens and the new earth? Um, We talked a little bit about this. My my feeling is that the Bible doesn't differentiate between the new heavens and the new earth. It just looks at it as a total new creation. And as far as we can understand it, once... When Jesus was resurrected, his body had had amazing capacitors that human bodies don't have. It could go through walls and get in locked rooms. It could also take off and ascend when time came for him to ascend into heaven. I mean, it's pretty good, isn't it, to do that? Uh, Certainly when the rapture comes, if I understand it aright, we ascend into heaven and we meet the Lord in the air. That certainly seems to be that the implication of that thing in Thessalonians. So if we can fly, it doesn't matter too much whether you're in heaven or on earth. You, maybe you can fly between one and the other. We don't know. I don't know. But it seems to me certainly possible. I, don't, I certainly don't think that earth will be for a certain class of believers and heaven will be for a higher class of believers. Uh, because it looks like the Lord and the Lamb come and dwell with us in the new heaven and the new earth. So they are in the center of it and access to them is offered to all of us. Okay, great, wonderful. I think you could say we've done that. Bless you all.